My name is Justin, and this is my other life. All of this started as just a side project, but sometimes the side project is the true project. If you want to learn more about my research, writings, or videos, or if you want to find more conversations like this one, check out theotherlifenow.com. And by the way, all of my work is supported by my audience, so huge thanks to all my patrons and to everyone who throws me some support every now and then. But hey, if you get what I'm doing and you're into it, even just a random email would be nice. It's good to hear from people. Or you could certainly leave a review on iTunes. That's really useful because it helps other people find the show. How are you doing today, all right? Um, I had a fall uh, trick-or-treating with the uh, kids last night, but uh, I, seem to, I seem to be okay. Oh, no. Sorry to hear that. I hope it's not too bad. <laughs> oh, I fell into a door that was being opened and uh, smashed my back. So if I uh, wince um, for any unknown reason, it's, it's because that muscle in my back uh, is, uh, is uh, spasming. So, oh, gosh. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Okay. If, if, you, if, you, if you need to wince or take a break or anything like that at any time, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, so, by the way, are you, do you prefer to just uh, have audio only? That's fine if that's what you prefer. Um, no, no, this is okay. Yeah, I'm fine either way. Yeah, whatever you want. Uh, totally up to you. So it's audio only right now, uh, but anything is fine okay. with me. So, yeah. All right. Um, so, Scott, I would love to, if you wouldn't mind, if we could just begin with talking a little bit about, I would just love to know a little bit more about your personal background because you have such an interesting kind of intellectual uh, profile. You are, from what I can tell, you're mostly a fantasy author, but you have also published academic articles in different fields. And I'm just very interested to hear in your own words, kind of, uh, how you would describe your overarching kind of intellectual, uh, profile or career. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I like to describe myself as uh, as a water bug. Um, just, I mean, insofar as uh, 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 I'm something of an information junkie, and uh, I, I tend to be inf- always interested in information from uh, a wide wide variety of fields, and uh, um, so as a result, uh, I uh, I kind of tend to be about a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that might be a, a liability in certain contexts, but, uh, uh um, in, uh, today's, uh, you know, day and age of, uh, of, uh, specialization and academic silos, I, I think it's actually, uh, um, something that we need more of not Definitely. less. Mm-hmm. So, uh, people who aren't constrained by the norms of acad- academic institutions yet uh, thinking through uh, um, problems that uh, are uh, sort of canonical academic problems. I think I, I think uh, the more the more of that we get in our society, the better. <laughs> especially yeah. especially as as the years pass. I mean, uh, the internet is. Uh, um, far from the panacea it was uh, originally advertised to be and uh, one of the one of the very interesting things i think i've noted is um just the way in which you know uh, um academics have you know uh, found themselves kind of running for the exits <laughs> in a lot of different ways when it comes mm-hmm. to uh um online discourse 
Yeah, that's right. Have, now, did you ever have earlier in your career, did you have an academic trajectory that you kind of uh, diverged from? Or what was your an, an initial plan and goal to be an independent fantasy author? Or maybe you could tell me how that kind of played out over time in your in your career. Um, I mean, I've wanted to be a, a fiction writer um, for as long as for as long as I, I can remember reading. Anyways, um, uh, at some point as a teenager, I, I remember uh, going through the numbers at, um, and realizing that the chances of actually being able to successfully pull off uh, a fiction writing career were uh, were limited, mm. and. Uh, um, uh, to say the least. And so I decided, um, that, uh, uh, my second great love, which was, uh, um, uh, just basically knowledge, I guess I, I throw myself into school. So I, I, I ended up knocking around university for an uh, inordinate amount of time, <laughs> um, first pursuing, uh, uh, English language and literature degree. Um, and then, uh, a, uh, Two-year MA in theory and criticism, which I use to segue into uh, um, the Vanderbilt uh, philosophy PhD program, and I studied okay. with uh, uh, David Wood, uh, uh, among others, uh, and uh, I was. Uh, quite literally on the last chapter of my dissertation when um, I received uh, the first offers for uh, my uh, first fantasy trilogy. And so uh, um, my dissertation came to a screeching halt <laughs> and my, uh, my life as, uh, as a novelist uh, began. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So I, it's, it's really cool and impressive that you've uh, somehow managed to also continue your kind of more academic intellectual and philosophical interests to the point of even, you know, publishing in academic journals recently. That's, that's very rare, I think, for uh, people who, you know, make a career, a successful career out of doing something outside of academia. So uh, I think that's, that's, that's all really cool. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you, because as you said, I'm kind of one of the many, I think, academics who are starting to kind of realize academia isn't really what uh, what they hoped it would be. And they're starting to kind of, I don't know if I would say look for exits, but definitely look for, um, yeah, look at looking outward for, for signs of life and signs of, um, sources of, of, uh, more live and interesting kind of intellectual energy. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing. I, I, I mean, um, I mean, one of the reasons uh, um, why I think I, I, I've been so less than sanguine about, you know, the the cultural possibilities of the web for so long is simply that as a, a fantasy writer, I mean, it just puts you in contact with uh, people of all uh, ideological uh, shapes and sizes. Right. And I realized very, very quickly that uh, um, something very, very strange it, it was afoot. And um, I mean, we call it the old, the old right now, uh, but it was a very vibrant, very big, very quickly growing uh, uh, population uh, of individuals on the web. And so, uh, I mean, even as early as 2001, 2002, I, I had uh, started uh, realizing that, you know, there was a kind of cultural catastrophe afoot. 
and that um, that just happened to dovetail in uh, uh, with you know, the big pessimistic crash I had at the end of trying to finish my dissertation. So, which was was going to be a work of uh, fundamental ontology, and uh, um, and. I don't know, things just sort of, I found myself writing fantasy and um, jotting down, uh, you know, philo philosophical, sociological, cognitive, psychological uh, ideas all, all at the same time, while keeping my eye on uh, just how toxic and uh, alarming um, the growth of, uh, of um you know, extremist views on the web uh, was becoming. Right. Okay. So maybe this would be a good time to pause and break that down a little bit. I think the catastrophe that you're referring to is something that you've written about as the semantic apocalypse. Could you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah. I, I mean, the, in the simplest form, the, the semantic apocalypse just simply has to do with uh, um, uh, I, I, the free will debate, I guess, is the simplest way to, to look at it, right? Our, our inability to swear our intuitions involving human action with our intuitions involving causal mechanisms. And uh, um, in my novel, uh, Neuropath, the semantic apocalypse is presented as uh, um, basically uh, uh, a becoming concrete of the free will problem. Mm -hmm. So um, as our knowledge of causal mechanisms becomes uh, ever more complete, ever more fine-grained, and our ability to manipulate uh, each other ourselves as mechanisms becomes ever more uh, evident. Uh, um, uh, what ends up happening is all those ancestral, ancestrally rooted conceptualities involving responsibility, intentionality, meaning, uh, um, become more and more difficult to square with our technological ecologies that we find ourselves living in now. The semantic apocalypse is best understood as uh, um, basically the cognitive complement of the Anthropocene. The, uh, um, uh, it is simply the environmental destruction that we see uh, around us. What was it? Uh, there was just a report that came out a couple days ago. 60% of, uh, uh, in the past 40 years, over 60% of uh, wild invertebrates have been have been uh, uh, wiped out. I mean, the populations have decreased on average by 60%. And mm -hmm. um, the semantic apocalypse is just simply that same ecological collapse, um, only pursued in, into uh, the the realm of uh, the ideas and uh, uh, um, the soul. Uh, it's what happens when our environments just simply become too toxic for us to rely on our evolved ways of meaning making. Right, right. That's a great breakdown. Thank you for that. You give, I think in one of your blog posts, you give um, some good examples that I think help people understand it, like the example of lazy children, right? The yeah, you know, yeah. historically, it's kind of made sense intuitively if a young child is not doing the work they're supposed to be doing in class or whatever it might be, uh, you know, to kind of reprimand them uh, in an, in a normative way. 
But now that we learn more and more about the causes of why, you know, a young child may or may not be productive, it becomes inhumane. Uh, it, with respect to our moral intuitions, it feels inhumane to punish them or to criticize them, and yet not criticizing uh, various forms of behavior that we find inadequate also feels uh, immoral. So, you know, the the other side of the coin would be like, do we not punish murderers because we know there are uh, mechanisms behind why they murder? And so now you've argued that, um, you know, I think you, as you said, this is kind of, this has been a problem that's always been around, but it's been kind of latent. Uh, it hasn't really been uh, made concrete or it hasn't really forced itself into really serious everyday problems with how we interact with each other. But now what's new about the current situation is that these uh, contradictions, uh, these logical kind of contradictions at the heart of what, uh, at the heart of our moral intuitions and how we communicate and make order together, they're now becoming, they're getting kind of overheated and it's actually becoming a real problem for uh, making basic decisions about how we proceed as people and, and as a society. That's only really happening today. Is that, is that your view? Yeah. Well, I mean, right now is, it, it is, uh, um, it's kind of the tipping point where, where most of, most of our intuitive ways of meaning making, um, are actually still functional, but I think everybody sort of feels the, the way in which we're standing on, on marbles. Mm. Right? Um, uh, with, if you look at say, uh, Ryan, uh, Callow and, uh, um, the question of the legal status of AI. I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, the dilemma we face. Once we have all these artificial agents in our midst, right, um, where do we assign criminal uh, culpability, you know, when things go amiss, right? right. I mean, it, holding the AI resp responsible is... It's just simply stupid, <laughs> but if the AI is actually autonomous and has no connection to individuals for for whatever reason, then um, who does get held responsible, or is it all just simply a horrible misfortune? Um, so you have you have the way in which uh, um, the uh, uh, knowledge allows us to you know. Uh, technologically recreate our environments, you have that way in which our intuitions are being defeated, right? Is an AI car responsible for hitting a pedestrian? And then on the other hand, you have, like you said, the, the lazy kid uh, side of the uh, equation, where it's just simply the knowledge itself becomes problematic. So you see this with uh, uh, the paradox between um, sensing uh, criminals uh, on the one hand and risk assessments of criminals mm -hmm. on the other hand. So if you adduce uh, um, neuroscientific evidence in the courtroom, you tend to actually uh, lessen their responsibility and thus you actually succeed in giving your client a uh, um, uh, lower sentence, right? So you right. diminish culpability on the sentencing side by adducing neuroscientific information. But when it comes time for probation, and the question is, is risk assessment, right? What kind of risk does this individual pose to society? 
all of a sudden that self-same neuroscientific information, <laughs> which right. minimized culpability to begin with, right, actually has the effect of maximizing punishment after the uh, after the fact, because if this person is biomechanically predisposed to you know uh, these sorts of infractions, it would just be out and out irrational to allow them early release, right? right. So you know, the exact same information playing almost diametrically opposite uh, conceptual roles um, in you know a traditional uh, uh, cognitive context. And right. if I'm right, that sort of problem is just simply going to metastasize and multiply and intensify. Right. And so this problem that, as you said, has kind of always been around uh, to some degree, but is only really getting heated up right now. Do, what is your view on the, the primary kind of causal factor there? Do, is it basically the digital revolution that you think is bringing all of these things to, to a head or is it something else? Um, I mean, I mean, like AI is, is, uh, um, just so like, I don't know if you, are you familiar with IBM's, uh, debating project? So, uh, IBM has this idea that, um, the, uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I find Google's effectiveness has been decreasing, um, hmm. actually, uh, um, quite noticeably in this past, uh, past couple of years. Okay. Um, and IBM wants to uh, apparently replace search engines with research engines. So the idea is to create uh, artificial agents that um, not simply search for uh, the terms you're after, right, but actually search for the ideas that you're looking for. And uh, uh, um, when you actually see, I mean, anyone can go on YouTube uh, uh, and uh, search uh, um IBM debater and, and they'll find instances of, uh, of, uh, an AI, uh, a sort of third generation Watson type AI actually debating <laughs> issues like euthanization and stuff like that. And it is downright terrifying, incredibly salient. And that, I think, you know, people look at that and they're like, oh, my God, you know, um, it, what happens when there's 10,000 of these agents for every human being on the planet? You know, what happens if and when they proliferate like spam? You know, how is it going to be possible to be human in, in such such an environment? Right. So, the, so there's a, a sort of the technological side of it is so in your face Um and it's on the cusp of breaking uh, and becoming uh, uh, absolutely ubiquitous that it's hard not to think that that's where the problem fundamentally lies. But the problem, I think, actually lies fundamentally just simply with the knowledge. So I think the, the sentencing versus risk assessment paradox is actually a, a better way to get a handle of what's fundamentally at issue in terms of uh, human cognitive ecology and the breakdown of that ecology. Because it clearly shows how just simply knowing something about your deep environments 
just uh, uh, um, understanding how human beings tick has the power to systematically unravel right all kinds of shallow environmental uh, uh, tricks that our ancestors have bequeathed to us and now form the the you know uh, foundation or boilerplate for uh, moral things like moral cognition right I mean, Right. Yeah, I mean, you can you can outlaw AI, but that's not going to solve the problem at all. I don't think. Right. Right. I definitely agree. Oh, hey, Scott. You know, just real quick, there in the background on your end, there's kind of like a repetitive uh, banging noise. I don't know if you can control it. If you can, it's okay. But yeah, maybe it's my chair creaking. Oh, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Don't worry about it if it's something you can't control. I just want to let you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, no worries. No worries at all. I wasn't sure if it was like a broken fan or something. Maybe you just turn off, but no, no, I think it's my chair. It's uh... <laughs> it's all good. Big guy. <laughs> I won't, I won't ask you to sit absolutely still. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I think is really good about your writings on the semantic apocalypse is I feel like you're really trying to kind of drill down into how severe the issue is and and kind of pull the alarm in a way that not a lot of people are doing right now. So for instance, like I really liked your your review of Steven Pinker's new book because I also have a certain exasperation with all of these kind of um, really super smart uh, intellectuals who are writing books nowadays and, you know, they're often extremely smart, valuable, uh, takes on, on various topics. But the, the, a lot of these books nowadays, they, they just leave me feeling like there's something really deeply kind of systematically being evaded in a lot of the, the kind of popular mainstream books and, and kind of prestige presses. Um, and I think Steven Pinker's book is a good example of it. It's like, I think on some level, the the problems that we're facing that, that you've been kind of blogging about and talking about, uh, they're very new and they're very severe, but it's almost like they there's something about them that makes it almost like we're almost prohibited from looking them, you know, straight, straight in the eye in a within kind of mainstream prestige hierarchies or something like that. It's something to me like to to occupy a kind of like influential prestigious position today in in intellectual ecologies one has to kind of repeat inherited kind of frameworks about how you know it's kind of like the assumption of the the traditional liberal order it's like you have to imagine that that still stands the idea that um you know you can write a book and it can kind of diagnose a bunch of problems and then that can kind of bring people together and then uh, voila, there'll be some kind of like collective solution to to that problem based on the insight delivered by this kind of, uh, you know, impressive scholarly book or whatever it might be. And and what's really going on is something deeper that actually um, starts to possibly make impossible that entire traditional model of 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 collective problem solving through, you know, uh, intellectual activity in that mold. Um, I don't know if that's making sense, but it's like, I think you're, this is why I think to me more and more, the, the most interesting and valuable thinkers and writers that you can find today tend to be um, people on the internet uh, speaking in, you know, trying to kind of develop new languages and, and, and be a little bit more honest about how bad and severe the problems we're facing really are in a way that it seems to me like a lot of mainstream authors are almost like structurally prohibited from, from, from staring in the face. It, it, 
I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling, but does that um, uh, does that uh, resonate with you at all, or no? Yeah. It, well, I mean, uh, uh, um, it's certainly a flattering view for me to adopt, right? Uh, being being an outsider, but but it is the case that I, if, you know, the big problem is, and it, it doesn't matter what you pick up. All you have to do is ask yourself one question, and the question is, what is the theory of cognition? You ask that question of pretty much any academic publication. And really, the only answer you get, right, quite often, even in books that are about theories of cognition, is a shrug of the shoulders, right? I mean, everybody is talking around cognition simply because we don't have a bloody clue as to uh, what cognition is. And when you find yourself um, sort of marooned in, in um, ignorance the way we are, um, but not just simply ignorance, ignorance that we're ignorant of, uh, um, it, I mean, is never just simply anything goes, right? There's got to be constraints somewhere, some way, somehow. And those constraints all too often just simply end up being institutional constraints. And and uh, um, so it, it's, I think it begins with this uh, uh, reluctance or, or perhaps outright inability to acknowledge, you know, the profound nature of our ignorance of the basic issue that's underwriting all these attempts to answer questions involving social condition, uh, cognition, moral cognition, literary cognition, um, uh, on and on and on, um, that uh, allows uh, allows you know basically uh, uh, um, uh, these uh, uh, you know I want to come up with a, a clever analogy here, but uh, um, you know these sort of uh, uh, self interpreting. <laughs> <laughs> floating uh, um, boluses of academic norms to uh, um, continue to monopolize various discourses, right? I mean, there has to be, people have to begin by saying, I don't know anything about cognition, or um, I have uh, one among 10,000 theories of cognition that I can't square in this way, that way, or so on. Um, I mean, unless you have an academic culture that begins from that point, I think it's almost inevitable that uh, the, the, uh, um, that, you know, voices are going to get chased to the margins of academe, right? Uh, original voices, innovative voices, what have you, um, just won't have a place in that environment because people are just simply too inclined to uh, uh, um, uh, think received uh, um, truths are, in fact, true. Right, right. Now, I mean, do you is your view that the semantic apocalypse, as you've called it, is you, is it your view that it's already happened and that a kind of irreversible chasm has been crossed, or is your view that it's kind of unfolding and maybe there could be some sort of course correction? Yeah, well, I mean, it's like uh, uh, um, like I take the continuity with the uh, ecological uh, apocalypse uh, um, literally. I mean, it, it's right. um, unfolding. I mean, the, the conditions for the, the breakdown of uh, the viability of meaning uh, um, 
are quite different than the conditions uh, for the viability of, say, uh, an aquifer, you know, off of Lake Winnipeg in uh, Manitoba, Canada. I, I, I mean, um, you know, ecologies collapse here and there, and uh, the ecology of human meaning has been quite robust up to this point in time. Um, it, uh, primarily, I think, because the changes in our cognitive ecology happened at a slow enough pace for us to uh, um, uh, adapt to and to nap into uh, uh, more instrumentally efficacious forms. Um, and also, we're just simply uh, very limited, you know, in in scope. So right now, we've reached a point where. And I think especially with AI, you know, I mean, you know, what happens when, you know, there's 10,000 agents for every human being on the planet Earth? I mean, uh, um, you know, there's no limits for uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, um, human beings are easily, easily uh, um, tricked, you know, which is to say our, our uh, reflexes, cognitive reflexes are easily cued out of school. I mean, uh, um, so I think I see it as, you know, so the free will debate, you know, it occurred to humans at some, po some point in time, that's actually a sign of the semantic apocalypse insofar as it's a sign of the way in which the growing knowledge of the human species suddenly made um, traditional assumptions regarding responsibility and guilt and, and choice uh, difficult to maintain in different in various specialized contexts. Hmm. Now we're reaching a point where the free will debate is all around us at all points in time, where governments are looking into uh, um, nudge strategies, right? Ways in which to uh, um, herd populaces to make certain kinds of decisions and so on and so forth. Right. You know, I sometimes feel like I see in kind of mainstream bureaucratic dynamics that it's like people whose job it is to kind of create rules and regulations, that they're kind of being overheated by these kind of cross-cutting uh, demands on their moral intuitions. Like, I sort of wonder if what one kind of corollary of the semantic apocalypse is that legacy institutions are kind of becoming suicidally uh, over-responsive to contradictory moral intuitions. And I wonder if what's kind of happening is legacy institutions are starting to kind of overwhelm themselves with uh, kind of nonsensical paperwork and rules and regulations that uh, don't really add up or, or can't really add up and just put increasingly uh, oppressive burdens on the different uh, individuals who who are supposed to be uh, creating value within these institutions. Like, I kind of wonder if, you know, the semantic apocalypse in some sense is a kind of uh, the, a death knell for these legacy institutions that just um, can't can't really uh, handle it, that we're never really designed to handle this this kind of overheating. 
Yeah, I, I mean, uh, um, with the uh, elections in the U.S., I mean, we're kind of looking, we're, we're kind of looking at, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, the midterm elections as basically uh, a sign of the health of these 18th century uh, institutions um, that were uh, uh, raised to uh, safeguard, uh, um, you know. Um, uh, the at least the perception of mass legitimacy in governing institutions um uh yeah you know the thing is is um the piling on of bureaucracy you know it all depends on where you go because uh, uh in certain uh private sector institutions for instance I, I mean it's there's an absolute mania for um constantly reconstituting the form of the institution right they it, 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 the corporate world seems to have grasped the idea that that the uh, constitutive dimension uh, of their own activity is something that needs to be constantly, you know, remolded and resh reshaped and reshifted. And you look at, uh, you know, Kevin Kelly or uh, um, um, Joy Ito, or uh, I mean, you look at these books written, you know, to help corporate leaders adapt in the age of disruption. Mm -hmm. And the, the mantra is always the same, right? You, you know, the constitutive dimension, right, of your own activity has to remain as plastic and as responsive as possible, right, to the product that you're actually developing. And so you see that they're very self-critical, <laughs> only in a, uh, uh, in a very narrow way. Uh, um, one bent on maximizing sh uh, uh, shareholder value. Uh -huh. um, and they're, in some cases, radically changing, whereas governmental institutions, academic institutions, you know, which don't have anything remotely approaching that kind of uh, um, self-awareness, let alone an ethos of, uh, of rewriting the constitutive dimensions, it seems like all they can do is just simply add on, <laughs> you know, problems arise, oh, we need something different to deal with that, you know, it, uh, um, and, and so it's kind of like a piling of band-aids on band-aids on band-aids. You don't, you don't really get any reconstitution. All you get are, are uh, um, ameliorations stacked upon ameliorations stacked upon ameliorations. And like you say, um, you end up generating uh, Kafkaesque uh, inefficiencies uh, in some instances. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's well put. Now, do you think that I'm over optimistic in my in my sense that one possible outcome of all of this is that the legacy institutions do uh, increasingly kind of crush themselves under the weight of their own Kafkaesque, um, you know, uh, bureaucratic tendencies. And the result is just more and more intelligent, creative people defect from these institutions that have historically captured them. And what you see possibly coming out of all of this is a kind of renaissance of divergent, creative, different communities of, of meaning making. And maybe the one implication of the semantic apocalypse is that perhaps there's no longer any hope of this uh, diversity of meaning making ever kind of aggregating or 
or converging on one kind of shared common uh, you know, public sphere or something like that. Maybe it will be irrevocably divergent. But am I too optimistic in thinking that maybe we're on the cusp of a of quite an attractive kind of development in which um, more and more people just kind of get together with the people around them that they're aligned with or interested in in working with, and you just see a proliferation of a of of communities of meaning, maybe. Um. I, I mean, I certainly don't think that's impossible. I, I, I mean, really, nobody knows um, what's what's going to uh, what's going to happen next. I mean, like, yeah. like I, personally, I think the the, the explosion in um, para academic uh, um, activity has uh, probably more to do with the, simply the overproduction of uh, of PhDs, hmm. right? I mean, there's just a lot of hyper uh, educated individuals out there um, who uh, just simply haven't been able to find work in academia. And so in a sense, are, are, are sort of forced to create their own spaces to, uh, to do so. So, I mean, I used to work uh, at a grocery store part-time and um, it was a running joke as to how many graduate degrees were sitting around the table uh, um, at uh, uh, coffee break. I mean, uh, um, and I think that's across the Western world, at least, I think that, that that's uh, um, a, a familiar story, perhaps, you know, the English professor driving cab, right? Um, but, you know, it's weird. It, I was checking out uh, Pew uh, research data um, mm. on uh, um, political attitudes in the U.S. Uh, a few months back. And one of the things that struck me, because, I mean, I had... Uh, I think probably a, a similar cartoon to a lot of people uh, um, uh, swirling in my head to explain what was going on with all this madness with Trump and all that. You know, the idea was that the, there was moral regression, right, as Alan Buchanan calls it, uh, um, that uh, um, we were actually backsliding uh, um, rather than uh, progressing and that the right was becoming more right. That was the problem. And when you look at the Pew data, it actually sketches out quite a different picture. Hmm. And what you see is that it seems like at some time in the 90s, right, when the internet became pervasive, um, right-wing attitudes, you know, stopped being dragged along by progressive attitudes, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's been the model for at least the last couple centuries anyways, right? Progressives right. seem to drag the conservatives along with them, you know, so that, uh, you know, the old progressivism becomes the new conservatism and on and on and on. Um, but right. it's true with, uh, with respect to social progressivism. Yes. It's not, it's not true with respect to economic progressivism, but yeah, yeah. your point is well taken. Yeah. yeah no good distinction. Um, so anyways, it, it seems like the the right stopped being dragged along at some point in the 90s and then just simply remained fixed in their attitudes. Whereas uh, uh, the progressives actually accelerated <laughs> and became more progressive. And the, in the overlap you know, between the two groups progressively shrank, not because the right was becoming more right, but 
but because the left was becoming more left. So there was like this sort of uh, uh, hyper-progressivism. And um, I mean, if you think about the web and the capaci capacity of the internet to uh, um, deliver rationalizations to conservatives, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, if they have a bottomless well of arguments to, to draw water from, they'll never go thirsty and they can stay at that water hole forever. Whereas on the left, if you have uh, sort of environments, competitive environments, like you have in academe, right? Just think of graduate school, um, uh, that there would actually be uh, uh, an acceleration of uh, hard forking, to use your metaphor. Um, you would actually, there, it would incentivize people to uh, um, muck with the code more and more and more and more, if only to differentiate themselves, right, in, in uh, um, a pack of individuals who, all of, all of whom need to be noticed some way, some shape or form, right, in order to have an academic career. So, right, yeah, interesting. That's, yeah, that, that's right, that's interesting. So, so go on. I mean, well, I mean, Trump, perhaps the best way to look at Trump is um, uh, as uh, uh, a left-wing artifact, <laughs> not, a, not a right-wing artifact, right? right? Well, I mean, you know, what you're just kind of making me think about is, I mean, you're right that you're, you're, I think your narrative about the left and the right is true with respect to the kind of activist core of of the left. The activist, the kind of publicly salient activist core of the left has accelerated. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think what we know from the data is that the still the overwhelming majority of people have not really moved that much. But there is something going on where I think in large part because of the, the digital context, the really vocal minorities, especially on the left, um, are basically pushing the right buttons that are basically kind of making a, a fairly large number of honestly less interested, less motivated, less passionate people kind of just go along with and accept the, the acceleration of the activist core. And yeah, so I think like it, what, what we're kind of seeing is this kind of like scramble for um, kind of picking off pieces of, of social reality and kind of taking control of pieces of social reality. So it's like people are kind of intuitively, whether it's conscious or not, they're at least intuitively starting to realize that we really are living through something like a semantic apocalypse. And everyone is, you know, those people who are kind of like relatively more aware or relatively more, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, people with more executive function or intelligence or different types of traits that kind of give them an edge over other people. Um, people are kind of starting to chip off the the commons uh, fork, you know, to fork, uh, you know, the, the previously common reality, as it were, and basically take control over their own little mini dominion. And, but, but lots of people are doing this right now and, and, and it's becoming really ideologically uh, fragmented. So there are dozens or if not, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of, of different pockets in which, uh, yeah, people are basically trying to uh, take control over their own rationalized kind of mentally controlled space and get followers um, uh, underneath them or or within their 
within their dominion. So are you saying you you can you can kind of see that playing out too? You agree with that kind of diagnosis that I've I've written about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, um, it, it, like it really does feel like it's it's ramping up. I mean, it really does feel like. Uh, um... <laughs> So one of the metaphors that uh, um, psychologists use is the difference uh, between uh, fixed and fluid personalities, right? And um, the idea would be that uh, um, modern technological cognitive ecologies um, uh, enable uh, individuals um, with more fixed dispositions um, to be more fixed and those with more fluid dispositions to be more fluid. And in a sense, you know, um, the para-academic uh, uh, ex- explosion could be understood as you know being part of that exact same uh, process, right? Where uh, the fluid thinkers um, um, actually now have platforms, right? I mean, my own my own work. You know, I mean, uh, I'm an eliminativist uh, who writes novels for a living, right? I mean, uh, um, I mean, if you would have told someone that back in the '80s, they would have thought you were mad. You know, I mean, uh, um, yeah. And, uh, 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 but yet, you know, you reached out, and, and here we are having having this discussion, and it's all been enabled by this new cognitive ecology, and uh, um, it really. Uh, uh, I think it just underscores just how radically that cognitive ecology has changed. And like you say, the, the uh, extremist voices on either side, you know, before you used to be able to lock them away and not have to worry about them because what are they going to do? Subscribe to a newsletter, annoy their neighbors, right? Uh, start a fight at Christmas dinner. <laughs> I mean, their, their uh, ability to uh, congregate and organize was uh, um, very, very limited. Um, and now, you know, you know I, I like using, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim the Toolman from, um, what was the name of that uh, old uh, comedy? Oh, yeah, uh, classic. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Tim was... Uh, what was it called? It was called, um, what the hell was that uh, thing called, that, that uh, series called? Um, I, I'll, it'll come to us. Go, Home, go improvement. Home Improvement. Is it called Home Improvement? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, he uh, uh, was, um, you know, very technically gifted, right? But uh, very maladroit when it came to uh, um, interpersonal skills, right? So he was constantly putting his foot in it, having all kinds of problems, right? Causing uh, um, social discord either within, you know, his family or within his close circuit of friends. And every time, you know, that those problems arose, he would go out to his backyard and he would have a discussion with his enigmatic uh, neighbor, Wilson, who oh, would just okay. be yeah. uh, part of a face over a fence post right and you know wilson would always you know ask tim you know what was ailing him and and tim would confess this or that and wilson who was uh bookish <laughs> right. right um if not academic then then uh um certainly someone uh uh, uh, who was intellectual, um, would give him some, you know, wise response and Tim would amend his behavior, go back in and there would be harmony and whatnot. 
Um, nowadays, right, Tim wouldn't bother <laughs> with Wilson <laughs> in his backyard, right? Tim would just Google it, you know? And, uh, um, you know, like I always say to people, you know, just Google, are Muslims dangerous? And see how much unbelievable drops you have to wade through before you get even close to a remotely uh, uh, um, credible answer to that question. I mean, uh, um, it's, I mean, the extreme voices are, you know, skewing the search results, right, which are selecting for people who otherwise wouldn't be motivated one way or the other, you know, and so right. all of a sudden our aberrant notions no longer have to run the gamut of uh, um, our uh, immediate, you know, friends and neighbors, um, right. you know, and so the social velocity of uh, of these uh, these uh, aberrant ideas um, just you know simply goes through the roof in a period of a very short period of time. It seems to me. You know, right. Well, interesting. Blog wars. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I was just going to say I've had blog wars with people who advocate uh, um, rescinding the the uh, right to vote for women. For Christ's sakes, right? I mean, uh-huh. like it's just unbelievable how. Uh, um, regressive things have become out there in such short order. Right, right. I think you're you're uh, recalling of home improvement was a, a lovely and a hilarious dramatization of 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 exactly what's happening. I, th- and I think that's very astute. And I'm I'm kind of thinking through the the analogy, and you know, I think the one of the the, the biggest problems there is that. Tim, the toolman Taylor, not only is not getting kind of the wisdom from Wilson, but if he's turning to Google, he's going to basically Google until he finds the advice that best suits his preferences, right? Yeah, yeah. And and his laziness, his work ethic, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now that's now if you think about Tim, the toolman Taylor, that's a kind of obvious loss. Like it's unfor- like he would be much better off having Wilson and taking the advice of Wilson, who's smarter and is going to keep. Tim more kind of like socially more, more functional with respect to the the social average and the the larger number of people he has to uh, interact with and cooperate with. But what's interesting is although you know Tim the Toolman Taylor turning to Google is going to be on net a, a negative you know consequence, there are going to be some people for whom that's a positive consequence. And so, in other words, like if your if your priors are accurate. Um, and you're turning to to Google, and you have a personal preference for increased, you know, having an increasingly accurate model of the world, or something like that. If that's if that's your profile of your preferences, then the semantic apocalypse, apocalypse is actually uh, going to supercharge you and your friends. And so, yeah. I think that's kind of the upshot. I mean, it's still it's still um, a very bleak and troubling. Uh, prospect overall, because you're you're going to have the implication is you're going to have radical inequality in terms of um, how people are benefited or harmed from from this uh, uh, moment or turning point. But the the upshot is that I think you're going to see more and more kind of competition really between different subgroups operating on radically different types of um, lifestyle. Uh, and, and cognitive uh, models or routines. And so, I mean, I, again, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I wonder if the acceleration of this kind of um, radical uh, divergence and, and experimentation that that is opening up is not going to rapidly turn out to, to be 
that what works and the types of attitudes and lifestyles and behavior patterns that that actually promote um, you know collective human well-being are those not going to um, rapidly uh, identify themselves as far more successful and attractive than the the other ways of, of living and being and 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 maybe perhaps you'll see a kind of accelerated cultural evolution in which better ways of thinking and living uh, win out and 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 bad ways of thinking and living uh, rapidly fall away because they're just completely unsustainable and they don't really work for promoting life. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, um, like you could kind of make the same argument for things like renewable energy, for instance, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, and yet, you know, here we are pouring ever more uh, CO2 into the atmosphere every year. I mean, uh, um, see, the thing is, is, I mean, the big part of the problem, so that you can look, if you look at the semantic apocalypse in terms of uh, um, these radically transforming cognitive ecologies, and um, your argument is that, well, this radical transformation is being, uh, uh, um, is actually generating uh, um, ever greater uh, uh, reservoir of possibilities for us to draw from to solve, so potentially solve our problems. And that um, those solutions themselves will recommend the possibilities and that in of itself will form uh, a selection mechanism that will enable us to basically bootstrap past this uh, uh, ugly uh, turn we happen to find ourselves in um, just shortly after the internet's birth. And I think that's I, I think that's entirely plausible. Um, the problem is is that the selection mechanisms right have have to be genuinely social, right? I mean, um, the selection mechanisms if if those mechanisms themselves are parochial and are themselves you know becoming uh, uh, um, more and more diverse, right? And uh, uh, um, themselves actually becoming more and more unrecognizable, right? Less backwards compatible. Uh, then all of a sudden, that actually isn't a, a good thing at all. That's actually, you know, the sort of diversification of possibilities um, is itself part of the problem, right? I mean, okay. I, I sometimes think that the simplest way to express the problem we face ourselves, that we, we find ourselves faced with right now, um, the simplest way to uh, get a grip on the uh, semantic apocalypse is just simply in terms of the plunging cost of reality. The fact that every single year, it becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to manufacture realities. and. Um, as reality becomes ever more plastic, especially to uh, um, human uh, um, desire, you know, um, then reality itself ceases to be the selective, the selection mechanism it once was. Um, all of a sudden, you can't. So, say this possibility, you know, that comes out of the the great speciation of ideas that the internet has uh, given rise to. Um, it actually is <laughs> a cure. 
you know, uh, um, some little mantra, say, that we can repeat to ourselves that will bring, you know, social harmony. And just, you know, this is fictional, of course. <laughs> but, but say someone found that, right? Now, the question is, is how does that actually end up making its way into society as, as a whole, right? I mean, you look at, uh, um, uh, so, I mean, like women's, women's liberation, right? I mean, uh, um, uh, and the way in other cultures, that's actually, you know, uh, um, uh, tagged as, you know, uh, identifying an individual as belonging to an out group. Uh, um, competitor, right? So you're just being American, you know? I mean, it's just, it's so easy, you know, to take good ideas and, and to uh, um, make them look not simply ugly, but actually threatening and, and horrific. And it's right. only getting easier. And that's, that's the problem. The reality of the good idea just simply um, has no way of uh, making its making its way through the noise at a certain point. That's, 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 a, that's a really good point. Good point. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. That, that's a really that's good point. point. Though, though, do you not think that there is a kind of ultimate background selection me mechanism that, that whether we like it or not, operates, which is kind of classical Darwinian mechanisms? Like, do you think that it sounds like you think our kind of capacities to create alternative realities are going to somehow um, really kind of uh, sidestep or obviate? the the hard kind of uh classical conditions in for, for you know the competition to survive because it seems to me that actually everything you're saying is right and it's a really interesting kind of counterpoint to what i'm saying but also it seems to me that with the acceleration of kind of contemporary global capitalism it, in some you know for lots of normal people it's just getting increasingly hard to survive i think and for many reasons and so um, whether we like it or not, is it not possible that the kind of hard, the hard competitive constraints of actually living in in a hostile, you know, uh, inhuman environment are going to put increasing pressure on people to actually figure out the correct, um, optimal um, kind of psychology and behaviors for for you know sustaining sustaining life. You know, I think part of the problem is, um, and in this case, I'm just revealing my pessimism about uh, uh, human human nature, mm. and maybe identifying myself as uh, an evil conservative in a way. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, I think part of the problem is that we, you know, so think about it. We have language, right? And language actually helps us coordinate uh, our activities and, and uh, um, conquer uh, unbelievable obstacles. Uh, so long as that language actually synchronizes us with our environments in ways that enable that. Right. And so that's a powerful, powerful tool. You know, um, it, it, so a powerful tool for synchronizing human beings. You know, now, so for me, you know, things like you know religious discourse, uh, um, uh, you know, myth, what have you. Um, that the best way to look at that is just simply taking that power, right, to coordinate human beings and exploiting it beyond the horizon, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this capacity to organize ourselves around uh, via language that doesn't synchronize us to anything at all 
accept one another, right? So be it, be it God, be it, you know, uh, um, spirits, be it what have you, right? Um, uh, power of language to practically organize us around nuts and bolts reality uh, um, just sort of naturally extends into the power of language to organize ourselves around bullshit. <laughs> and so we've used bullshit um, for our entire evolutionary history, you know, well, I mean, a recent evolutionary history to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, just do unbelievable things, you know, like to, to get guys to crawl out of trenches and to run into uh, uh, machine gun fire. I mean, that's just like, that's absolutely mind blowing. And, right. and why are they doing it for an idea, <laughs> an ideal, right? Right. And, Shot right of being shot or court-martialed, right? But right. So, given the fact that we are, in a sense, hardwired to BS ourselves when it comes to big-picture claims, um, I just, you know, I, I can't help but feel that human beings just intrinsically prefer. <laughs> I mean, we just have a a a, a weakness for the self-congratulatory BS. And you know that the claims that are real, that are actually the key to uh, um, reversing whatever's going on, are not going to, they're going to be, they're going to be technical. They're going to be abstract. They're, they're uh, going to be humbling, right? They're just not going to have uh, the, uh, the, the features that tend to cue uh, um, ascent from, from human beings. So, uh, I think it's just one way of characterizing the problem. No, I think that's all really astute. And I, I basically agreed with every single word you were saying. The only thing I think I'm kind of adding here is that I'm sure you would agree there are going to be uh, differences. There are going to be individual differences in people's capacities for and preferences for, um, you know, accurate models of objective reality or, you know, there, people are going to have um, different levels of bullshit detectors. Right. And, and this is going to vary individually to some degree. I think anyone would have to accept that. And even if you're overwhelmingly right that humans do prefer kind of BS and self-congratulation and, and rationalization of, of their initial preferences, there only needs to be a little bit of variation. If there are some people that uh, are are more interested in having an accurate model of the world and of of navigating objective reality successfully and and kind of checking their their rationalizations checking their biases if some people are better at that than other people i think the semantic apocalypse is going to imply not just everyone kind of equally um, going off into outer space, losing themselves in self-flattering virtual realities. But I think what you're going to see, and I think what we're already kind of seeing is a kind of uh, division opening up between those who are creating the alternative realities and those who are merely consuming those alternative realities. And so, because it seems to me that um, if you, you know, in the time period before we're all kind of plugged into absolutely arbitrary and artificial um, second realities, in the time period between now and then, those who survive and accumulate resources are going to be those who are have more accurately attuned models of, of the world, right? I think I think that's that's hard to deny. And so, people who can adequately 
navigate the world and accrue resources because they understand what's going on better than other people, those people are going to increasingly uh, be the authors of, of these alternative realities. And, and the rest of people are going to have to kind of pick which reality created by some other systems engineer, basically, they want to kind of ensconce themselves, I think. And and that's why I think you're seeing this scramble among kind of activist types and creator types to kind of um, create and organize um, their own worlds in, in a sense. In some sense, I think people are increasingly selling uh, the alternative realities that they're creating and designing to the larger mass of people who are looking or kind of shopping around for a, a reality that they want to just kind of buy into and, and consume and, and live within. Does that uh, resonate with you at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, um, I call this a, a cratic society, right? Mm. So we have uh, a, a calving, uh, you know, between the, the vast bulk of uh, humanity who, uh, um, and I, I, and I see the geek as, uh, as a sort of paradigmatic prototype of this, you know, people who, uh, you know, simply uh, uh, buy into, you know, some kind of uh, um, alternate uh, um, disconnected reality mm. and people who uh, um, uh, become technocrats in uh, a, a more and more and more literal sense, right? Um, the, see, the problem is, is that, you know, at some point, what ends up happening is that I mean, like even this conversation now, so you and I are, we're having this conversation and the amount of, uh, you know, uh, information that we're able to glean from our own conversation, right. Via reflection, what have you, right. Our, uh, uh, second order metacognitive feedback we get from this, um, it, it has no windows whatsoever on all the information that gets elided or, uh, um, admitted. So huh. it generates the illusion uh, of basically this this conversation being semantically self-contained, right? This sort of exchange between minds, between souls, what have you, right? But I mean, what's actually going on is, you know, we two brains, right, on on uh, two uh, sides of the planet, right, are uh, um, uh, you know diddling each other. I mean, that's a horrible analogy, but but. Uh, um, uh, there is a super complicated fact of the matter of this conversation that's going on. And the interface that we find ourselves trapped in feels closed, right? Feels complete, feels, feels continuous, but it feels immeasurably deep. But in point of fact, when you actually start looking at what it is people do to one another when they when they communicate, um, a great deal of it exhibits what uh, uh, Clifford Nass calls uh, mindlessness. Right? It's there's scripts. I'm queuing scripts in you. You're queuing scripts in me. Uh -huh. You know, uh, uh, um, and back and forth we go. Right? It's our lack of penetration that basically prevents us from seeing it's fundamentally biomechanical nature. And we're creating cognitive ecologies. We're designing cognitive ecologies that, that uh, um, uh, are, you know, um, in many cases, uh, intentionally designed to exploit that mindlessness, right? And to exploit the blindness we have to our own, our own uh, mindlessness. And so, you know, the semantic apocalypse, you know, um, 
in a sense, what it means is that, you know, this very interface that you and I are enjoying right now uh, um, is itself, right, dependent upon, right, a cognitive uh, ecology that's in the, in the uh, uh, process of collapse. And what that means, I think, I fear, is that, you know, so in the one half of the Cratic society, the bulk of individuals are lost in, in uh, fantasy worlds of, of various, uh, various kinds. And then you have the, the, the technocrats. For them, you know, the only way to really have a handle on what's going on, right, uh, um, is to actually start thinking, start behaving, start acting in post-intentional ways. So to actually become what they are to begin with uh, in their interactions. And, you know, so in that sense, <laughs> the few, the, the, the we few, it becomes really even hard to think of them as being human anymore <laughs> because they won't recognize choice or responsibility or reason. You know, they won't even think in those terms, right? I mean, they'll be thinking noise reduction and what have you. I mean, it'll be uh, um, their idiom will not be our idiom. Our idiom will actually belong to the fantasy world idiom. It's just, it'll just be the most sort of rarefied and uh, involuted uh, uh, version of that, uh, of that uh, fantasy world uh, uh, spectrum. Okay, so that's really fascinating. So you were just saying you think people are eventually going to start behaving in post-intentional ways. Is that, did I understand that correctly? What do you mean by that? Well, I think, I mean, I think they already are. I, I mean, um, if, uh, geez, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Um, he was the uh, Google ethicist that, that ended up quitting. Um, I mean, but if you just look at uh, uh, the ways in which social media uh, engineers um, are explicitly relying on cognitive science to uh, um, uh, isolate various cues, right? That, uh, uh, um, and they're doing so in a very, very primitive way now, but it's just going to become more and more uh, uh, sophisticated as, as time goes on. Um, they're already interacting with humanity in post-intentional ways. They're already treating their customers not as animals, which is the old model, <laughs> where you use associative conditioning to sell people things, right? Uh -huh. Happy people on a, uh, on a screen to sell toothpaste, <laughs> Right. I mean, uh, um, uh, the days of being treated uh, as animals, um, the good old days, are, are even now uh, morphing into uh, the days of being treated as mechanisms, outright machines. And uh, um, that is a post-intentional way of, uh, uh, of comporting oneself to uh, one's fellows. Okay. So you think that kind of smarter people right now are updating their attitudes towards people and their behaviors toward people, treating people acting in acting in post-intentional ways, treating people in a post-intentional way, which basically means treating them like machines. Smart people are increasingly doing this and the, the masses kind of carry on, <clears throat> carry on with their intentional intuitions, which essentially renders them in a, 
to be living in a kind of fantasy world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I would uh, hesitate to use the the term smarter, right? I mean, uh, um, that's a good the, question. Then, so what what the is most, what the is most this? brilliant people? I think will will actually be firmly fixed in the fantasy world because uh, um, I think they're the ones uh, um, you know uh, uh, that have the greatest gift for rationalization. But but uh, um, the reality based people are okay. already already uh, um, comporting themselves to their fellows as as machines treating them as machines looking for buttons to push you know and and uh, uh, um, systems and processes they can use to uh, maximize uh, utilities from from that button pushing so you just kind of said something that I was kind of interesting. You sort of implied that you think there's a kind of U-shaped curve between intelligence and kind of the preference for fantasy, meaning <laughs> not how you say it. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, uh, I, I'm a veteran of a couple of philosophy departments now, and uh, um, I can remember being uh, a uh, undergraduate and thinking that the you know the world of professors. I mean, it was just enlightened minds uh, um, getting along, <laughs> using using the golden uh, uh, square of reason to uh, make sure uh, um, uh, you know every every uh, building <laughs> stands true. <Yeah>. But uh, <laughs> that's not the case. I mean, uh, um, you get a lot of intelligent people together, and and. Uh, um, uh, it seems to me things go haywire pretty quick <laughs> because hey, creativity, intelligence, um, you know, those two things, right? I make up stories for a living and, yeah. uh, uh, um, uh, I like to think of myself as a smart ass. Uh, um, yeah, it, I, I mean, uh, I don't know, intelligence, I, I mean, intelligence, it's kind of like, uh, you, you're trying to, you're trying to generalize, uh, uh the ungeneralizable, right. But, but, uh, um, I, I don't think uh, um, creative people uh, will fare well. I think uh, creative people, I think we're, we're creating ecologies that will allow, you know, interests to uh, um, actually uh, easily, easily trap and uh, exploit creatives. Okay. Interesting. Now, real quick, by the way, I, I don't want to keep you for too long. Do you have some time or do you need to run up to you? Oh, no, oh, no. I have some time. I have some time. Uh, yeah. Probably about another about half an hour or so. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. That's great. Um, so do you think that's really interesting what you're saying right now? So if kind of reality-based people will increasingly update their attitudes and behaviors in a way that reflects a view of humans as, as basically machines, what you call a post-intentional perspective, the, those people are going to be increasingly, they're going to be the manipulators. They're going to be kind of pulling strings, right? And the rest of the people are going to be kind of pawns or, or, or victims to the, to the ulterior motives of uh, the post-intentional reality-based people. Now, do you think much about like what is the um, space of possible attitude and behavior updating that normal people might want to pursue more and more, not to manipulate other people, but just to almost as a kind of self-defense, as a way of kind of navigating this reality in a way that allows them to have better traction over, over their own environment and not be manipulated, but also without necessarily becoming a kind of, um, uh, you know, manipulator. Yeah. Problem is there is no other kind of choice. Well, I, I, like I think it pays to to 
um, at least bump up a, a, against the, the the limits of intentional thinking um, before before tackling this issue, right? Because it, it really is uh, um, almost impossible to imagine what a genuinely post you know thoroughgoing post intentional uh, mindset would be. I mean, part of it would would just have absolutely no. Uh, regard for uh, the moral value of manipulation versus autonomy, right? I mean, that um, uh, uh, um, even just simply base valuation, right? So if you if you look at valuation um, as, uh, uh, say, the way in which, you know, dopamine um, tunes various uh, uh, parts of the brain, uh-huh. you know, increasing, you know, statistically increasing Increasing the the chances uh, of uh, certain types of uh, verbal and nonverbal behavior being being cued, right? Given right. given uh, um, certain kinds of, of circumstances, I, I mean, kind of wrap your head around that. But when you're in the midst of a conversation, and you're in the midst of you know hashing out a problem with another individual. I mean, it's really hard to to see that as uh, as being you know your fundamental uh, assumption moving moving ahead. I mean, I do these little experiments where I try to think of things post intentionally. You know, try to think of people as machines, and and uh, I get very very creeped out very very fast, and, and I also. Um, I'm afflicted by a sense of uh, disingenuousness, right? Uh, um, uh, I become convinced that I'm just pretending <laughs> right. to be uh, to be uh, uh, post-intentional in this or, or, or that respect, right? I mean, it's a genuine reflective crash space, you know. I mean, uh, um, it's like being Windows 10 and uh, um, trying to pretend to be Windows. 20 or something like that. I mean, it's just, uh, 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 um, all you really end up doing is, is sort of, uh, uh, um, demonstrating just how alien and inhuman, right. This, this, uh, boundary, uh, this boundary is. So what was the original question again? Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. I, we can maybe just, uh, segue into something else if you want. I, I, I would think I was just, pausing to reflect on whether there's not a pathway through which human beings at this current juncture could basically update their attitudes and behaviors to reflect the the kind of post-intentional reality of, of who we are, basically agree to kind of see oneself and see each other even as machines, and yet maybe figure out a way to interact that's not uh, simply exploitative manipulation. Like why could, for instance, a group of people not say, Hey, look, we know we're all machines. Uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're not gonna have any illusions about us as, you know, intentional voluntary, um, snowflake hearts, but we are just, we are just machines. We can learn how those machines work and we can just kind of hack each other in a way that reflects our shared, uh, desires. Yeah. I I mean, but even that, uh, um, because I mean, even desires. I mean, desires is a, a quintessentially uh, intentional concept, right? Right. I mean, um, it's 
like the language of human communication is this uh, basic interface that, that you and I enjoy right now is not simply insensitive to it, it, its biomechanical sources, right? It is premised on right being insensitive to those biomechanical sources and that's why you get the short circuits that you, you that you see you know uh metastatizing through society as a whole right now right with the, the lazy children right i mean can't call a child lazy now because um you know whatever it was that was making them lazy has been identified that's all it is <laughs> it's been identified right uh um helplessness over behavior right uh um uh uh basically exempts one from responsibility for that behavior so you know that's an intentional way of actually dealing with some post-intentional facts, right? Okay. I, I mean, and that's that's the problem. I mean, we just simply get backed further and further into various corners, um, um, but there's no escaping the room in a in a very a very real sense, right? Right. Right. So okay. whatever whatever sort of so what transcends us will be um, you know uh, probably in some real form. Uh, actual amalgam of uh, of human and artificial intelligence, but it will uh, um, uh, not be human or recognizably human uh, um, to you know those who uh, elect to uh, go down the route of apology and and uh, live out you know live out their lives in fantasy worlds. Okay, that's interesting. Now, do you think that your personal path towards being a fantasy writer, do you think that's related to your perceptions around semantic apocalypse? In other words, is it is it do you, do you think about fantasy and kind of the the lifestyle of of creative art basically as is that itself a kind of possible solution or a possible response to the predicament of semantic apocalypse is that how you see it or no so i, I mean it, it's um part and parcel I, uh, um so I, like i began to realize uh, um having been uh, a literature student for uh, for so long and also you know growing up uh, the son of a, of a tobacco farmer, um, you know, uh, I, I really, really uh, became uh, troubled by the way in which, on the one hand, the internet seemed to be radicalizing, allowing, you know, the sort of uh, these crazy ideas to uh, um, uh, impact too many people and the extent to which literary fiction just reached nobody <laughs> outside mm -hmm. right certain constrained trained uh populations of individuals and the thing the thing uh, um that uh, attracted me the most fantasy aside from the fact that it was it was my adolescent uh obsession was the fact that uh, um you know harry potter uh uh books were being burned <laughs> I, I mean I, like the fact that people were burning harry potter um, and not burning, uh, um, you know, uh, um, underworld or, or, uh, any monumental, uh, or infinite jest or any monumental, uh, work of, uh, literature, um, showed me the fact that, you know, these monumental works of literature 
just weren't actually literature at all. They they were genre, right? They they were uh, um, basically the repetition of dedicated forms for the consumption of uh, of like minded audiences, yeah. and that if there was any sort of literary, genuine literary potential uh, um, left, it had to lie in right these channels, these genres that actually reached individuals who uh, had dissenting mindsets. And so I decided that in order to be a truly literary writer in the age of uh, the internet, um, a, a writer had to self-consciously game right, the, the channels of literary communication in order to uh, um, you know, actually do what literature is supposed to do, which is just basically be fiction right, that actually challenges preconceived uh, conceptions. Right? So right. fantasy it was, and, and uh, um, uh, I think probably ended up being too uh, much of a wanker in the books ultimately, but I did manage to scare up, a, I did manage to make a career for myself and to scare up uh, a fair amount of controversy. Um, uh, what do you mean you were? Uh, well, so fantasy, I'm, I, I'm saying that I, I guess um, there's a sort of strategic decision behind uh, pursuing fantasy as okay. a literary yeah. um, expression. And then also on the other hand, I, I mean, fantasy is, you know, the greater half of uh, this picture of a, a cratic, uh or post-intentional society that I'm painting, right? You know, the more tenuous meaning becomes, right, the more uh, um, fantastic it becomes, right? The less uh, uh, reality-based uh, thought is going to uh, uh, have uh, anything to do with it. So um, the fantasy it itself struck me as just an ideal vehicle uh, um, with which to explore these problems, right? So my big fantasy series, uh, um, instead of uh, uh, you know, the modernist paradigm, you have uh, a uh, uh, protagonist trapped in a meaningless world, trying to make sense of things, right? Usually finding meaning um, in uh, um, some sort of uh, quotidian dimension of uh, love or connectedness or what have you. Um, I thought uh, fantasy is perfect, right? Because it's not modernist, it's pre-modernist. So why not take a meaningless protagonist <laughs> and, set, and set him loose in a meaningful world, an intrinsically meaningful world, and uh, basically explore the semantic apocalypse um, it, uh, via photographic negative, which is, which is what my fantasy books are. They're all about the semantic apocalypse, only basically inverted, right? It's the inverse problem that we're, uh, that we're facing ourselves. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, then there is a, a close relationship then, yeah. I suppose. One of the reasons I'm I'm kind of interested in the this question is because in my own strange way, I actually had a, a an experience, an accidental experience with this because, you know, I'm an academic social scientist. I'm very kind of hard-nosed, empirical type of person. I don't really, I'm afraid to say I don't even read that much fiction. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I've been very obsessed for for the past you know ten years or so with trying to kind of understand how how things work empirically. And 
but this summer actually I, there was like a random few days where i was just kind of i like to be goofy and I, i'm quite you know i do like to like be random and creative um every so often and i made some videos uh, uh that were kind of like just dabbling in the kind of uh almost like conspiratainment genre which is actually like quite quite big now i mean there's a met i didn't even realize how much of a demand there is for um fantasy on the one hand yeah but also kind of um uh, the space between fantasy and and reality i mean people yeah. really really like this and i didn't even know how much people love this until i was just kind of creatively making some videos that were you know it was basically fantasy but it was talking about uh, real people and without going too much into it i was basically just spinning like a yarn about kind of connecting the dots between a few empirical kind of things out in the world and it got a lot of views and i picked up a lot of new subscribers from from that video series but it was just like a random kind of fantasy experiment really and uh kind of comedic but kind of empirical and that's when i was like that really kind of changed that kind of changed my views about what's going on in in the culture what's going on with things like youtube what's going on with things like the internet because i'm sort of like people really there's a huge demand for 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 this sort of thing and you know my kind of you know the, the we all have to be wankers a little bit to to survive to kind of think about like what is the best way to um you know connect with people for strategic purposes of you know having an audience and and, and being sustainable and that sort of thing but also because we want to have the maximum impact we can as as you know creative intellectuals i think that's a natural um that's a natural pull and so ever since that that was like a few months ago ever since then i've been thinking more and more about like what is the role of fantasy in kind of contemporary intellectual life because i think the the division between kind of hard-nosed um empirical diagnoses of what's happening what's truly happening the division between that and fantasy at least in in viewers minds it's becoming increasingly blurry and maybe that means that um for intellectual creators it also is going to have to become uh somewhat blurry too i don't know if you have any thoughts on um perhaps positive feedback loops in other words between fantasy and reality yeah well like i would distinguish i would distinguish fantasy um from fiction uh, it, i mean uh, um really i mean fantasy is uh, it, it is bizarre in that uh, um it's especially fictional fiction <laughs> so i mean fiction fiction when we say fiction we actually presume a whole uh, we presume the whole empirical world right i mean fiction uh, um is resolutely empirical insofar as it depicts uh um non-existent events right in existent settings okay it's generally generally uh, uh the case with fiction i mean fantasy what makes fantasy so peculiar is the fact that it's fictional all the way down right mm. i mean it's fiction set in fictional contexts and what makes those contexts fictional is the fact that they've all been anthropomorphized right in other words they're all intentional so um uh what you find in fantasy fiction is um basically the expression of our you know systematic misapplication of uh intentional cognitive systems to the empirical world right um you know homeric greece Vedic India, uh, 
um, biblical Israel, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Each of those worlds um, uh, all share very, very similar ontology. And that ontology just happens to be the ontology we use to make sense of one another, right? And all of it is radically heuristic. It has no real application to uh, physical reality whatsoever. But because of this powerful coordinating nature, uh, uh, nature of language, right? We, uh, we, uh, um, exploited it. And, you know, with the rise of science, suddenly you could suddenly see, you know, the, um, uh, extra fictional, uh, uh, dimensions of these, you know, traditional, these traditional narratives. And, you know, when you set out to create your own scripture, it's automatically identified as a fantasy. Mm. Uh, um, uh, you know, once you start playing out um, fictional dramas in the empirical world, uh, um, then, you know, I mean, things, I would say, become fantastic, more or less to the extent that you're ontologizing something uh, um, that's intentional, right? So if you have, uh, say, a religious worldview, um, you are going to lapse into fantasy to the degree that religion informs your view of what the world is, right? Whereas if you're agnostic or atheistic, right, your fiction, you know, will just be fiction, you know, it'll be fantasy in the sense that it's not reality, but it won't be fantasy in the sense that it makes, uh, these, uh, this huge ontological, uh, ontological leap, um, and the question really becomes, you know, with, you know, the proliferation of the plunging cost of reality, once again, um, the question really uh, uh, becomes one of how <laughs> that boundary, right, those boundaries, you know, between outright fantasy, outright post-intentional reality, and humanity, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, um, find themselves, uh, uh, aligned. I, I mean, uh-huh. you know, in a sense, acrotic society can be understood as, you know, a small subset of humans just opting out of fiction altogether, right? Even the useful fictions, such as those we use to communicate with one another, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, and the rest of humanity diving into, uh, fantasy, uh, wholeheartedly. And what you're bringing up, right? is a whole, basically a, 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 an array of, uh, of liminal counterexamples to that, right? Like the, the zone, zone between that. Right. And, uh, yeah, no, I, it's very, very interesting, uh, uh, question, um, at least within the framework of, of, of how I understand things. I mean, what happens when, you know, say something like current events, like you could foresee a news channel that fictionalizes current events in real time. <laughs> they have some sort of AI, right? AIs are, are winning novel writing contests now. They have some sort of AI that takes a real event and fictionalizes it, right? It could do so for cynical political purposes, you know, or or uh, it could be uh, a playful onion type uh, um, uh, thing uh, um, a, a, as well, right? But all of it, I would argue, is still 
just uh, firmly within the, the, the wheelhouse of uh, the fundamental problem of the semantic apocalypse, which right. is simply that we actually rely on cognitive ecologies where no humans or human artifacts have this power. <laughs> and the more this power is exercised within our ecologies, the more our ancestral ecologies of meaning break down. Right, right. Well, I think that things get really interesting when you also acknowledge that our fantasies or our fictions that we produce then start to have material effects on on people's actions and behaviors. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And so, you know, the thesis that I'm kind of more and more thinking about is, you know, because I, I mean, as an academic, as an intellectual, in, in a more empirical sense, you know, as that being kind of my goal and a major part of my goal and, and vocation, it, it, it's starting to look to me as if like, if you really want to identify kind of true models of, of how the world works and communicate those models to other people, then it's almost like you're we're being f- forced to to grapple with kind of the the widespread demand for fantasy if you want to even have a chance at communicating what you think is a is a more accurate model so it's like to to share the truth if, to, to share what you think is the truth and and to make that spread one has to more and more be able to um play the play the games of, of fiction or, or fantasy I, I wonder if um yeah. Yeah. i mean that's exactly how i i mean that's how i see my uh, uh um my own my own sort of uh, intellectual artistic mission right is is doing that exact same thing i mean right figuring out i, I mean i want to figure out what's going on with cognition i, I mean uh, um because you know that's the, the whole reason why we can't see our way through any of these problems is because we don't know what cognition is and so um that problem I think uh, needs to be solved, but the the other big problem is basically uh, one uh, of uh, uh, of breaking open the silos, right? Somehow um, taking that knowledge and disseminating that in an age where um, everything is just simply becoming astronomically more and more noisy, not simply more noisy, but more uh, um, effectively noisy, which is a strange way of, uh, of putting it, I guess, but, um, mm-hmm. but just um, more nuanced in its ability to trigger responses from, from uh, um, human beings, otherwise oblivious human beings. Right, right. So um, I think maybe if I could, I'll just ask you one last question and then I'll let you go in like five minutes. Um, the, I, I often, when I talk with people who are a little bit older than me and, and who, whose work I admire and who, who have been you know, successful in their own way, I often like to kind of end the conversation with asking if you, know, you have any um, kind of strategic insights or advice, or it could be not necessarily strategic, it could also just be personal or ethical or whatever. Do you have any kind of thoughts or advice that you like to share with kind of younger um, intellectuals or creative types uh, that you, you know, lessons or insights that you've picked up along the way in your own trajectory about, you know, how to navigate the the contemporary uh, semantic apocalypse in a way that's productive and enriching and satisfying and successful. Yeah, yeah well, I, I uh, um, don't know about the enriching and or successful part, but uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, for people who have a literary bent, um, uh, all I can do is plead with them to not write mainstream 
literature, right? Or if they do write it, then just acknowledge that it's another form of entertainment. Stop pretending that uh, um, anything's being excavated or any problems are being solved or even explored uh, um, in this day and age. Because this day and age, uh, um, all those all those voices do is add to insularity, which is which is probably the greatest, most immediate consequence of the plunging cost of reality yeah. or the semantic apocalypse. Um, for those uh, um, with a more academic bent, I think maybe um, I would just say, <laughs> ask that question, what is your theory of cognition? You know, and if that theory is an intentional theory, right, then say, well, what is intentionality? Um, and, and just relentlessly ask that question uh, of your own work and every work you read. And uh, um, uh, because I think that that's one good way in which we can sort of break down the mountains of superstition we've, we've heaped under the name of humanism, right? I mean, humanism is what's going to cut our throat. It's not, not uh, you know, uh, contra pinker. It's not what's going to save us. It's, it's what's going to cut our throat. Um, if so long as we see ourselves as free autonomous agents, we uh, participate in the grand delusion of somehow being disconnected from our cognitive ecologies. And the, and therefore we think everything that's given to us to augment us in a cognitive sense is a, a gift rather than what it very likely is, is a, a form of uh, a form of pollution uh, something inclined to uh, generate uh, um, who knows what kind of downstream um, uh, um, negative consequences wow. so it's pretty depressing i guess but uh... <laughs> yeah no that's 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 really profound and fascinating i appreciate that I, I'll, I'll be thinking about that for a while real quick though i'm curious like why do you um why do you even bother publishing in academic journals for instance like you seem to still have some sort of belief that participating in kind of mainstream language games is worthwhile yeah yeah well i mean um I don't know. It'd be hard to separate rationalization from from uh, from habit from uh, from uh, um, you know just good old fashioned glory seeking. I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you're talking to a guy who who literally thinks he's actually solved the problem of meaning, right? So, <laughs> I, I, I mean. Uh, um, and, I mean, so to do that, first off, you have to convince a lot of people that there is a problem and uh, people outside of academia uh, um, uh, generally don't even think about it, let alone uh, worry about it as uh, as a problem. Right. Um, and so, you know, getting getting uh, uh, my theory out there in academic contexts right, is uh, um, is really what, what else? What else am I going to do? Right. I mean, uh, um, uh Sure. Also, yeah. too, I'm just I've, I've just always been when it comes to uh, ideas, I've always been a slave. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know why I do half the things I do. I, uh, um, I just I, you know, I do them, and uh, um, I, I find them uh, endlessly uh, engaging and endlessly fascinating. You know, for a time, and then and then, uh, and then I move on. Um, this has been with me for many, many, many years now. So I, I can't see moving past uh, all this 
this meaning stuff or the semantic apocalypse. And, you know, third and probably the most important is the fact that I have, uh, I have a young child and, uh, um, I, you know, I'm terrified about the world that, uh, um, we're bequeathing our, uh, our kids. And, uh, um, I just can't see any way in which, you know, um, one can be a word, uh, a window bag and, uh, um, actually make a positive difference than by, you know, publishing in academic journals or, or for that matter, publishing, uh, fantasy novels. Right. So, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. That was, I think that just a very honest, uh, reflection of your, your views on the matter. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think about all this stuff by, uh, um, in terms of motivation. I, I mean, I'm trapped on the intentional side of uh, of uh, the puzzle, right? So, right. so um, my, question, my question was kind of implicitly, uh, you know, in, imposing on you a kind of intentional frame. So if, as you said, it's just kind of impossible to escape thinking and speaking in those terms in some way. Yeah, well, my biggest fear is that all this stuff that I'm doing is actually just simply going to hasten this semantic apocalypse, right? Um, uh, that by giving people ways to actually understand what meaning is uh, um, empirically, that what I'm ultimately doing is uh, um, basically laying the groundwork for the ultimate overthrow of, of meaning. But uh, um, for the life of me, I don't know how we can solve a problem when we don't understand understand what the problem is so i don't know once right. again now yeah. feels like a crash space so <laughs> now i'm not going to open a big can, can of worms at the very end of our conversation or anything but just i wanted to clarify real quick when you when you mentioned that you you feel like you've possibly solved the the problem of meaning were you referring to a, a particular idea or discovery that we haven't talked about or just basically what we've been talking about no i mean what we've uh, what we've been talking about i mean the the problem problem of meaning is just simply the question of what is intentionality right what is uh, what is aboutness you know uh, um, what is truth you know what is uh, morality what is correctness right um, why can't we take any of these vocabularies and actually make them fit with empirical uh, contexts with anything approaching the degree that you find in the natural sciences, right? What renders them distinct, what renders them unworkable here and yet so powerful there, right? Why can we operate, operationalize them in these contexts, but not those contexts, right? I, I mean, um, the problem of meaning um, theoretically spans um, all those, all those issues. Right, right. Well, Scott, this has been an awesome conversation, and I'm very grateful for your time. I'm a huge fan of your ideas. I tell people about your blog all the time. And uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, this was really fun and edifying, and I'm very grateful for your time. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you have any thoughts on that, good or bad, definitely let me know. Shoot me an email, or you can DM me on Twitter. If you were really into that, you might leave a review on iTunes. That would be cool. Or if you were really, really into that, you might want to become a patron yourself. You can check that out at patreon.com slash jmurphy with no U. All right, cool. Talk to you later.